This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Digging into Reginald Hudlin's resume is like the most inspiring rabbit hole you could possibly tumble down. I feel like most people, myself included, know Reginald as a director of classic 90s films like House Party and Boomerang. And while he's been consistent on the directing front, most recently with his Netflix doc on music industry legend Clarence Avant, Reginald also served as the first president of entertainment for BET. He's produced highly regarded films and TV shows like Django Unchained and The Boondocks. And he's written seminal story arcs for the Black Panther comic book series, including co-creating everyone's favorite little sister, Shuri. Basically, Reginald is a superhero in his own right for creativity, especially for black creatives like myself, I'm just saying. In our conversation, Reginald takes us through his storied career, which is truly a universal masterclass in creativity. Well, Reginald, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have this really towering career that spans film, TV, comic books, and more. But I want to start at the foundation of that tower, if you will. So what would you say were some of the first bricks, so to speak, that really kind of laid the foundation for this career and creativity that you have right now? Well, I think uh, I was having a one-two punch at the start of my career with the success of House Party and Boomerang. Mm -hmm. You know, two movies that captured cultural trends on the upswing and you really didn't have movies like them that existed before. Not at all. That depicted young black life, both teenagers and then young adults, in kind of three-dimensional ways. Mm-hmm. But were funny and entertaining. So that kind of established who I was and what the tone was and the fact that, wait, he just did it twice. Mm-hmm. So that first success wasn't an accident. He <laughs> appears to know what he's doing. <laughs> so I think that really set me up. Right. And even with Bebe's Kids, which actually came out the same summer as a Boomerang. Personal favorite of mine. <laughs> right. It's um, That's a movie that there's a generation of kids like yourself mm-hmm. uh, that have grown up on. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So that one, two, three made an incredible impression uh, on audiences, which is great. And it's funny because now uh, on the kind of what I call my third act of my career. <laughs> Hopefully there's like a four and a five oh, and a six yeah, and a yeah, seven. Yeah, like, you know, Because I'm thinking of a three act like play and a uh-huh. movie and I'm like, don't, don't, yeah, no, no, don't, no, don't no, sell no. yourself short. No, 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 no <laughs> not like that at all. But you know, producing movies like Django Unchained mm-hmm. and directing Marshall and now Black Godfather, it's like, oh, wait a minute, you're not just the funny, <laughs> cool kind of, you know, black excellence guy, but you're also do this other stuff. Right. So it's just kind of like showing all the parts of who I am mm-hmm. through the work that I do. Right. And I feel like even before your, I guess, official career started, I mean, you went to Harvard. And mm-hmm. even before that, I mean, you're at the Catherine Dunham Center for Performing Arts, which is mm-hmm. remarkable. I mean, so for, I guess, like, how did that even shape you even before you mm. entered Hollywood? Oh, you're trying to go in the crates now. I mean, listen, <laughs> I'm digging deep. Yeah. Where, where are these LPs at? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, well you, now you're talking about the most important stuff to mm-hmm. me. Because growing up in East St. Louis, Illinois, right, where 
on one hand, I was two doors down from where Ike met Tina. Right? Wow. And then two doors down on the other side from Brother Joe May, oh who was a legendary gospel star mm-hmm. who used to tour with Reverend C.L. Franklin, yep. whose daughter is Aretha Franklin. Yep. So I had kind of had heaven and hell <laughs> in equal reach. And Miles Davis's mother taught third grade at the elementary school. Just so much excellence. Oh, my God. Right. So you have this town. It's all black. Mm-hmm where we celebrated Martin Luther King Day and Malcolm X Day. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's that because kind of there thing. is a Malcolm X Day. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what the rest of the world's doing, <laughs> but in my town, we have Malcolm X Day. Right. <laughs> right. And it's an all-black town. You know, when I grew up, the mayor was black, da 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 So I knew what we could do, but I also saw, oh, but we're doing it wrong. Right. Oh, my God, this is not very well run, and oh, my God, why can't the schools have good stuff? Mm-hmm. So black nationalism kind of baked into me, but also kind of a like not being naive about it mm-hmm. and saying, okay, but we have to do better. Mm-hmm. So all those things uh, with all the cultural richness, particularly with Catherine Dunham, because you know, to grow up in a place where she would show you, here is African masks and drums and all this stuff from all over the world. And that's part of your childhood, along with Earth, Wind, and Fire and of Bobby Boo Bland and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And here's slave trains. Here's a, here's a wanted poster for runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a diasporic point of view. Yeah from year zero, so that was presumed. Mm -hmm. And then I had a father who owned his own business, as did my grandfather who owned his own business. Mm. So, you know, the businesses were, didn't matter. My grandfather was a stonemason, my father was an insurance agent, but it was all about, well, we can do it ourselves. Exactly. You know, bounce a checkbook, you know, treat employees right. Mm You know, just the fundamentals of doing for self. Mm -hmm. So all that was baked in. Mm. And for me, it was like, well, I just, I want to tell stories. And and I knew I wanted to tell stories in every medium. So part of what I'm doing now as I make movies and TV shows and comic books and live events, it's like, well, this is, was always the 12 year old bucket list plan. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hopefully I'll get to the 25-year-old bucket list. But I think you will. But the the 12-year-old list is pretty good. (laughs) I was going to say, you're not doing too bad for yourself so far. And, you know, I think that when you think about your first feature film, which was House Party, to Mm -hmm. the films that you're making now, Mm -hmm. what would you say has changed in how you approach a story? I mean, like, how have you sort of refined your process? Mm. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the thing that hasn't changed is what isn't being said. Hmm. And that's always my priority. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like in this world there's two categories. There's heat seekers and there's talent seekers, hmm. right? And like they're both legitimate approaches, right? right? <laughs> heat is, that's what's hot. Right. So we need to do what's hot. Let's mm-hmm. follow that. Let's get the hot person on the hot subject matter and yep. do Just the thing that's- the trends, right. right. I've never been interested in that, mm-hmm. mainly because there was so much in black culture that had not been told. Mm-hmm. So to do what was acceptable was such a narrow and in many ways demeaning category. So I was like, no, 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 I- I'm gonna take the harder road, 
which is to prove you guys are wrong. Right. Because my attitude was you can't drive forward looking in the rearview mirror. Mm. Now that goes against how show business works, which is it's all based on precedent. Yep. Right. So well, this is what made money before, so we know who the market is and we know who to who to sell it to, blah, blah, blah. And it's like doesn't work like that. Right. Now, here I am many, many uh, years in, and sometimes I get a little irritated because <laughs> people are well, I don't know about that, Reggie. I'm like, you don't know. Let's just stop the sentence there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, if you were right and I was wrong, I wouldn't be talking to you. My life is a refutation of your opinion, which is ill-informed. Ooh. Say it again louder for the people in the back. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. And I feel like, you know, there's so much discourse around inclusive storytelling. And, you know, there are some strides being made today. Mm-hmm. And But, I mean, we obviously have a long way to go as it pertains to having parody in front of the screen and behind the screen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would assume pushing stories focus on black characters with our dialogue and our references and everything that's important to us mm-hmm. was probably much tougher as a harder sell back in the 90s when you broke into the industry. And so with that being said, I mean, so for all the classics that you've either directed or produced, like House Party, like Boomerang, like Mm. Baby's Kids, how did you convince the right people to trust in your vision? Mm -hmm. Well, Because these are going through like traditional studios. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, first of all, let's just say this. It is better. And I know we Mm -hmm. as black people tend to not want to acknowledge things are getting better. Yeah. Right? We love to hold on to our victimhood. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But acknowledging things are better doesn't mean things are good or that the work is done. Exactly. But I think it is healthy for us and for the allies that we're partnering with for us all to acknowledge things are better. Mm -hmm. And everyone's eating better because we are making these changes. Exactly. So you have to have carrots and sticks. In terms of how it was done, Mm -hmm. you know, you start at the bottom. You know, when I was shopping House Party, every studio turned it down. And they were very clear. They were like, Reggie, you know what doesn't sell right now? Black movies and teen movies. You have a black teen movie. (laughs) That's two things no one wants. Two whole strikes. (laughs) Right. And we got it made at New Line Cinema Mm -hmm. because they were the bottom feeder, right? They were the last stop on the train. Right. <laughs> and they were like, ah, what's he want? Two and a half million bucks? Let's give him two million and see what happens. Right. Right? And that's a big deal, you know, because <clears throat> when you give money to a first-time filmmaker, you're just guessing. Exactly. You don't know if they can actually do what they say. You don't know if they're going to melt down. They don't know if you can show up every day. <laughs> so I'm really grateful for that first opportunity to prove a point. Right. And that movie made 10 times its money back. It was one of the most profitable movies of that decade. So again, you go, well, see, there is this huge audience for this thing that your experts say don't exist, Mm -hmm. right? So that caught the attention of Eddie Murphy, who calls and goes, oh, I like that you guys go for the joke, Yeah. right? So we talked, and it took us like a year to figure out which movie. We're pitching ideas back and forth. And... When I got sent the script for Boomerang, I was like, oh, my God, this is what we want. This is what we need. Mm -hmm. And the script we did a lot of work on, but the idea, which is to do a Rock Hudson Doris Day movie, to do a Woody Allen movie, 
And because it was Eddie, we had the resources to do it with the production value that was required to attract all the other stars. Because one of the things that always frustrated me as a fan of Eddie Murphy movies is that it was always just him. And he never had a cast around him that was commensurate in talent. Not that anyone is as funny as Eddie Murphy, but he still should have had a killer team. Yeah. So we surrounded him with Martin Lawrence, with this young actress named Halle Berry, mm-hmm. with this young comedian named Chris Rock, you know, yeah. with Johnny Witherspoon, you know, uh, with David Allen Greer, with all these killers. Yeah. And Eddie had no problem letting everyone shine. You know, you do your thing, you do your thing. <laughs> and he knew, like Jordan is like, but believe me, when it comes down for me to dunk, dunking will I be done. I got it, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so so working with a person who's the same age as him, who understand all the cultural references of being a young black professional in New York at that moment, yeah. and, you know, to have the music of L.A. and Babyface, you know, so whose good. label was kind of floundering, mm-hmm. and you know, this was a big break for them. Absolutely. And I remember we he kept sending me these awesome demos, and I was like, "Well, who's singing the demo?" They were like, "Oh, this is young girl signed to our label." I was like, "Well, why don't we use her?" So that was the beginning of Tony Braxton. Mm-hmm. Love should have brought you, but <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it was just a great moment just to capture the zeitgeist. I love that. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So you've had this expansive and successful career in film and TV, and then you pivot to the executive side in 2005, where you served as BET's first president of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, you seem to be having so much success in creating film and shows, and you know, now you hop on the other side of the fence. So, what was what was your thinking behind that? Well, I was kind of frustrated. Um, in what way? Because yes, I was working, I was doing things, but I wasn't doing things at the scale or pace that I wanted. Mm. For me, a real template piece was George Lucas going from American Graffiti to Star Wars, mm. and I was like, well, that's what you got to do. Yeah. Right. Because I knew that the ultimate way for us to break into global success was through genre. Yeah. And I knew science fiction transcended race. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, you can, you know, uh, there's a million examples of from Night of the Walk, Night of the Living Dead, to you know, Lando and Star Wars. You just go look. Once you put them on a spaceship, <laughs> they can roll with it. So, and and plus that was my personal predilection. Yeah. I grew up reading comic books and you know doing all that. So, and I just couldn't get there, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't just me; it was our whole generation of black filmmakers. Whether it was Spike, whether it was John Sinkin, and we all were kind of hitting a ceiling. Yeah. And part of it is. We all had initial success making personal films. And we were ready now to kind of move into epic mode. Right. I mean, at the same time I was doing Boomerang, uh, Spike was doing Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. right? So you had 
in New York at the same time, black filmmakers, you know, working with the biggest black stars, making, you know, $40 million movies, right? right? It's a big, big deal. And it felt like, oh, this is the beginning of the new era. But the fact is, it was the end. Yeah. So I was like, well, this is frustrating me. And the truth is, I don't understand this world. I didn't grow up with an uncle in show business. We're figuring it out as we go. Right. And I wanted to switch to the other side of the desk to understand it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. So when I get a phone call out of the blue to say, hey, would you like to run the biggest black media company in the world? Uh, yeah, I would <laughs> like to do that because I've, I've never done that. Right. If I'm going to learn on the job at that level, yeah, I'm all in. It's amazing. And it was a fantastic experience because Bob Johnson said, look, you're a brand brought in to reposition a brand because the consensus uh, within Viacom was it was time for BT to evolve right. and to move into original programming and, you know, you're the person to do that. Right. So, you know, we built a new set of protocols and like, okay, this is how we green light shows and this is this is the programming approach and, and this really felt that out. Mm-hmm. And in that first year, I was like, well, what do you guys want from me? And they said, well, if you can deliver four shows in year one, that'd be great. So I delivered eight. <laughs> <laughs> and with those eight shows, we beat the ratings record three times. We, wow. you know, have the biggest show in the history of the network. Then we top that. Right. Then we top that again. Oh, you know, and amazing. it was just like, okay, now we're going, right. right? And so it was really fantastic building a, a, a news organization from scratch, yeah. building a, a home video organization from scratch. So just really building a, a, a business, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a well-financed startup, you know, yeah. with all their success, there's all these areas they hadn't been uh, into. So that was a, a fantastic experience and I learned a lot. I was gonna say, so I mean, from that, what? how did that executive side kind of feed the creative side? Because you mentioned that you wanted to hop on the other side of the fence, so to speak, because you wanted to see how it works. So when you did leave uh, BET and mm-hmm. kind of went back into filmmaking, we're gonna get to, you know, mm-hmm. you've been writing comic books around the same time <laughs> as well. You know, how would you say, what did you, what learnings did you take from that, those executive days that you applied to you as a filmmaker, as a producer, like what did you, mm-hmm. what did you walk away from? Well, a lot. One mm-hmm. is, I mean, look, as a filmmaker, you kind of work with yourself, yeah. right? And as an executive, you work with a lot of creators. Mm-hmm. So you, that's a different perspective when you see all these other people and their styles of working. So you go, oh, that's how they do it. Oh, that's how they do it. So just that is a big deal. Then I understood. I many times, you know, walk in, you pitch an idea, and then you leave the room. And you go, what's happening now <laughs> that I just <laughs> left the room? Well, now I was the guy in the room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and not just for BET, sometimes Paramount would say, hey, Reg, we have a pitch. Would you come over and hear that with us and let's talk about it? So building those relationships with all the different Viacom family companies, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's Nickelodeon or Paramount or what, uh, and whatever, and working with them, understanding the executive point of view, because it's very easy for creators to have a hostile or contentious relationship with the studio or with the executives. Absolutely. And what you learn is that, well, there's really no need for that. Mm-hmm. Because the fact is, 
they're giving you money because they believe in you. Yeah. Now, you may disagree on strategy or tactics, but you have to really look at them as allies, as partners. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you just do everything they say, but there's an attitude in which how you do things that can either lead to a better outcome and a better long-term relationship or not. Mm-hmm. So these things may seem obvious to some people, but... They're kind of not. right? And so there's a certain point after three years there, and I would talk to people, and I realized there was a kind of a lonely feeling because being a creative and then being an executive, I just had perspectives that no one else had. Mm-hmm. Even people who were veterans in the business and you know I deeply respected, I'm like, oh, you don't know that. Wow, <laughs> okay. So then it was like, okay, well, this is this. I can keep doing this. But again, that that felt like it was kind of reaching a limit because, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, my thing is to be very aggressive. And at the time, Viacom was going through a lot of changes. And I was like, uh, we can't really grow this company as aggressively as I wanted. And at the same time, I saw Tyler Perry out there killing it. I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, I make stuff too. I mean, <laughs> so maybe I need to go back to my day job and start making stuff because right. it seems like the other side is where the, the where the heat is. Right. <laughs> so uh, I said, let me go back. Right. And making stuff. And around this time, I think maybe even a little bit before you started at BET, you you started writing comic comic books, specifically like Black Panther, which again, <laughs> you as if your resume couldn't get any. <laughs> Any more amazing than it is. I mean, you add this on top. So how did that come about? Right. There was a couple of things that happened right before BET. Right. One was kind of meeting Aaron Magruder mm-hmm. and taking the boondock from a comic strip, you know, in his student newspaper and setting that up, you know. Again, another favorite of mine. As, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> as, uh, you know, as a, tele- as a television series. And being... Uh, through some friends connected to Marvel Mm -hmm. and having just a meeting with them. Not like I'm pitching. I'm just like, oh, my God, I get to meet the guys at Marvel. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) I've been trying to do that since I was eight, you know. (laughs) I mean, when I first went to New York, we land at the airport and some friends, you know, family friends picked us up. I said, just drive down Madison Avenue. (laughs) They're like, why? Because I said, because Marvel and DC and Mad Magazine are all on Madison <laughs> Avenue, and I was sure there would be big neon signage for their buildings because that's how things are in the right. Midwest. So it would be like that in New York. I was like, oh, these buildings are very tall, and there's not any clear signage of who they are. Right. I mean, how long is this Madison Avenue anyway? <laughs> this is a really long street. I need to see your greatness on the outside. I know it's on the inside. <laughs> exactly. Give me a sign. I was very confused. <laughs> so so uh, I meet with Marvel and we're just talking and then they go, well, what book do you want to do? I'm like, huh? What book do you want to do? Uh, Black Panther. Okay, you got six issues. Unbelievable. So it was like, I walked out like, oh, <laughs> let's check that childhood dream box. Done. <laughs> so. Unbelievable. And it was like, okay, I got six issues, right? And it's the kind of thing where you tell your friends with a lot of excitement, yo, I'm writing the Black Panther. <laughs> and they go, that's great. 
Who's that? (laughs) We have no idea. Oh, man. Yep. Before the movie days, you know, like he wasn't that. Not at all. We have no idea what that means. (laughs) But we appreciate your excitement. It's like we're happy for you, though. That thing. But don't you make movies in a comic book, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So um, so I said, I'm going to write this six issues as if I would, if at the time Marvel as a film company wasn't a thing. Yeah. So there was no promise that there would ever be a Black Panther mm-hmm. movie. Uh, so I said, look, I'm going to write this six issues as if this is it. Yeah. Like, there'll never be another thing. <laughs> and I'm going to call it Who is the Black Panther. I'm going to explain everything you need to know about who this character is and why he's important to you. Right. And at the time, it like blew out all these records. And mm-hmm. everybody was like, whoa, Black Panther, he doesn't sell like that. Why is he suddenly so hot? And Reggie, you're in all this mainstream press and suddenly you've made him an event character. Yeah. Uh, so that was fabulous. And, in, and then when the BT offer came, I actually had to put a carve out that says, look, I'm going to keep writing Black Panther as I do this executive job mm-hmm. because I have to have one creative outlet. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> and oh, what a creative outlet that is. You're not talking about basket weaving. You're talking about <laughs> writing for like the, one of the biggest like comic book companies. So, man. Yeah, and it was a lot because, I mean, I'm running the biggest black media company. Mm-hmm. So... A lot of Black Panther was written like on red-eye flights between New York and L.A., (laughs) you know, you're just writing, here's six pages, send it to the artist. I don't know what the next six pages are, but I'm sure it'll all work out. (laughs) I mean, so it felt like, you know, those jazz musicians who just walked into the studio and you just play. Right. And hopefully kind of blue comes out, you know. (laughs) Hopefully. You just never know. Right. But, you know, there was some fundamental things uh, and, and, and anyway, so that success led to, you know, we were sitting around the office at lunch and someone said, you know what we should do? We should do an animated Black Panther series. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and then I just forgot about it. Then I just went back. And then like three months later, they said, here's the first five minutes. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is hot. <laughs> so I flew to New York and showed it to Marvel and they were like, we're so glad you didn't ask permission because we would never have allowed this. Uh, but this is hot. So we ended up doing a Black Panther animated series, these six episodes, with Jaiman Hansu and Kerry Washington and Joe Scott and Alfre Woodard. I mean, it was amazing. the cast of life. Right. And between the comic book series and the animated series, it basically created an environment where there was this demand from fans for there to be a Black Panther movie, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, it was a lot of pushback at Marvel for a long time, and then finally it happened. Yeah, and uh, oh, did it happen. And oh, <laughs> did it happen. And great, because they clearly kind of were inspired a lot by the books I wrote, you know, you know, particularly Shuri, because mm-hmm. Black Panther never had a sister before, yeah. And I thought that was a mistake. So I said, let's give him a sibling. Let's have her be a girl. Let's have her be a scientific genius mm-hmm. who's like, little brother, big brother, you're okay, but you know, I got this. Right. Right. <laughs> so to see the movie and to see her perfectly executed. A, perfectly. And like, that, that breakout role, breakout character it was like, that's what, every, that's what everyone kept writing about it. Like, it was just like, that was like Letitia Wright, like, became 
kind of the movie in no, a lot of ways. It yeah, was no, she was spectacular, and it was just perfectly done. It was wonderful. So, and then to go to my kid's school and see kids, black, white, dressed as Shuri, which was the nice. point. Yeah. The point was I wanted my son and my daughter to be able to dress as Black Panther. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, they, they outgrew it. <laughs> so I didn't get them in the outfit. Plus, they're like, "Oh, that's Daddy's thing." Right. I'm like, you. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, for a generation and generations to come, now this is a thing. Yeah. So, what would you say you learned from kind of stepping outside of your rhythm, so to speak? Because I mean, this is something that you you're a fan of comic books, but you never really written it in like the professional way, maybe mm-hmm. even at all. So, what would you say you learned from that experience of? kind of shaking it up a little bit and taking and grabbing this opportunity. Well, the great thing about comic books is the stakes are so low. Mm. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> it's not like people are really covering it, you know, except yeah. for the specific trade press. Mm-hmm. You know, the budgets are very tiny. You know, there's no star casting. There's no, you know. Right. So you could just, my thing was like, well, I'm just going to write the book to please me, mm-hmm. right? If I focus on pleasing me, I figure there's other people like me. Yeah. And that turned out to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I was going to (laughs) say. You know? So I was like, well, I just need that approach in life. Because typically, if I follow my gut, you get House Party or Boomerang or Black Panther. And when I kind of do the smart thing, Mm -hmm. that's when projects fail. Yeah. So I was like, don't do that. (laughs) I mean, people go, oh, man, I'm not going to sell out. I've tried to sell out. And you know what? doesn't work for me. I've just found I have to do what I believe in. If I believe in it, no matter how improbable the concept is, it tends to succeed very well. And if I don't do that, then it doesn't work. Mm. So that makes decision making very clear. (laughs) Just do what you believe in, period. Yeah. And you mentioned something a little bit earlier. You said, you know, when you brought the animated series to Marvel, they're like, oh, we're so glad you didn't ask for permission. And when you said that, that reminded me of Clarence Avon and how, like, he rarely asked for permission. And so your documentary, The Black Godfather on Netflix, is, you know, tells the really remarkable story of this sort of renaissance man in entertainment, uh, Clarence Avon. And he managed to soar to obviously unthinkable heights at that time, especially for a black man. And so for you, you know, you've never directed a feature documentary before. So why now and why this particular story? Well, the irony is uh, when I studied film at Harvard, it was a documentary program. Mm. And, you know, fiction was kind of frowned upon. Mm. And when I did my senior thesis, which is a 20-minute short called House Party, that was kind of an act of rebellion, right? right? (laughs) So finally I'm like, okay. Especially at Harvard. (laughs) Yeah. But again, do what you want. (laughs) So then with Clarence, his story is so unbelievable. You have to do it as a documentary. Mm -hmm. And not only have to do it as a documentary, with every story I made sure there were two or three people telling the same story. Mm -hmm. Because it's you're like, no, 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 I'm telling you this is what what happened. I'm gonna do the journalistic, you know, three sources (laughs) approach so you can't question it. Right. And it made the storytelling richer because Clarence's version versus, you know, Andrew Young's version Mm -hmm. versus Hank Aaron's version of the story. Jones' version. Like you had every Barack Obama's in it, Bill Clinton. Like you like 
everybody turned out for this. Like, yeah, well, it's Clarence. Exactly. You know, who's calling? Someone's calling for Clarence. Okay. <laughs> they pick up the phone. I love that. And I would love to, I mean, if you could like walk through some of those creative choices and how mm-hmm. you wanted this stock to be and how you wanted Clarence's story to be told. Because mm-hmm. like, mind you, the, a lot of people, you know, I think in the in the beginning of the doc, they call him kind of like the celebrity celebrity. Mm-hmm. And he, for all the remarkable things he's done, Largely, he was still behind the scenes. You know, he wasn't like kind of like a Quincy Jones who, you know, was producing behind the scenes, but also, you know, was a performer himself. So Mm -hmm. in many ways, a lot of people don't know his story for Mm -hmm. all the things that he's done. So for you coming into it, how did you want this doc to be? How did you want to tell a story? Like, what were some of those Mm -hmm. choices that you made? I mean, for me, that was part of the appeal Mm -hmm. because Clarence broke so many assumed rules mm-hmm. of how to be a power player. Yeah. Starting with the fact that he has had no interest in fame his entire career. Yeah. Right? And people don't know who he is because he didn't want you to know who he is. And for a generation that is hooked on your Instagram and ch- clout chasing mm-hmm. and all that, it's like, no, 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 no. This is how it's really done. Yeah. If you were really a player, no one knows who you are. I mean, again, KRS one. Real bad boys move in silence. Exactly. So that was part of the appeal to me. And then also for me, when I came up in show business, particularly in in my friends in the music business, they all worshipped Clarence. Mm -hmm. They all had the most tremendous respect for him. So he wasn't an unknown to me. I personally had known him from the beginning of my professional career. He helped me get my first job in the movie business. Wow. You know, I was going to ask. I feel like you know. I was going to ask if you guys have crossed paths. Oh before. yeah, yeah. No, I I was a you know I'd done this again this short film at Harvard and I'm just out here mm-hmm. like want to make movies in Hollywood. Have no idea how to cross that Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I get a call from George Jackson, who uh, was a black producer. He graduated a few years ahead of me at Harvard, mm-hmm. and he said, "Look." We're developing this movie for Janet Jackson and the time. Hmm. And Janet had just done the Control album, and the time was still hot off Purple Rain. And, you know, we need, maybe you could, you know, write it and direct it. I was like, wow! (laughs) So what I didn't know that, of course, the person behind George Jackson and, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry, who were producing Mm -hmm. both acts, was all Clarence. Of course. Right? So I fly out to L.A., First time as sort of, you know, an adult mm-hmm. for professional reasons. <laughs> and uh, Clarence was there at the airport. Oh, wow. I was like, whoa! <laughs> and I knew it was a big deal, and I, he shouldn't be there. <laughs> so uh, I Did went you have to a sh- sign with your name on it? Was he picking you up? <laughs> no, 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 he was there with, you know, with George. Anyway, so I went to shake his hand, and he put a tootsie roll in my hand. And it was kind of like, look, I'm here. I'm not going to shake your hand, too. Like... <laughs> Come on, kid. And I was like, yeah, I got it. I, I got the symbolism. Yes, sir. I'm right. happy to be here. <laughs> and I was brought to his house. And they were like, just wait here until, you know, he's ready to see you. I was like, yes, sir. And it was stuffed with unbelievable black art. Oh, man. Right? You know, paintings and sculptures. And wait, is that an Andy Warhol? And uh, mm-hmm. So you're there. I'm like, okay, don't touch nothing. <laughs> right? Museum I, rules. Yeah, right? I know. I know how this go. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> and, and he got me this job, you know, writing a script. Yeah. And I had never written a feature script before. 
I think if you took all the writing I'd ever done, it wouldn't equal 120 pages, right? So I was like, <laughs> well, let's just see how this works. Yeah. And I wrote a script. It wasn't very good, but I got paid. For me, well, a fortune. Right. <laughs> and I had enough money where I could buy a car or a computer. Because hmm. back then, they were about the same cost. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I think I'm going to buy the computer because I think I will make more money with the computer. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I'll get a car. Right. So I bought the computer, and my two other indulgences is like, I'll eat in restaurants. <laughs> and late at night, I'm not going to take the one. I'm going to take a cab. Back to my place in Harlem. So that was to me the balling out. That was the big life. <laughs> I just ate on Indian Row and now I'm taking a cab home. Oh, you you fancy, huh? Come on now. <laughs> so so yeah, so I mean, but that, you know, was my first professional experience. Mm-hmm. And with that computer, I wrote a script on spec, mm. which was called House Party. It was a feature film. And that led to that movie getting made and my whole career happening. That's amazing. That's so cool. And, you know, I feel like knowing Clarence and obviously, you know, uh, having all these interviews with the people who knew him in this documentary, I mean, what did you walk away from that experience making the documentary with? I mean, what sort of secondhand wisdom can can we get through him from you that's not in the doc? Well, I really feel like the most essential lessons are in the doc. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that's really gratifying to me is the people who call me and say, so I watched your movie, then I got a notepad and I watched it again. Mm. And now it's kind of a term, you know, like I'm balling, but are you Avon? Mm. You know, so. Uh, oh, I like that. <laughs> you know, like, whoa. And people are like, no, this is the new model of success. Right. People are saying, well, you're, you're an up-and-coming young executive, so you need to watch The Black Godfather now, mm. because this is how it's done. Right. Someone said it's the new 50 Laws of Power. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, that's big. Wow. You know? And look, for me and my team, you know, Nelson George and Byron Phillips, we all knew Clarence our whole careers. Right. Um, and we all felt like, well, between the three of us, we know everything there is about him. And we all find out we were like the three blind men with the elephant. One knew the tail, one knew the snout, mm-hmm. one knew the leg, but none of us had a sense of the whole him. Yeah. And making the movie, every interview ended with someone going, well, you know who you need to talk to? And they would name three more people. And we would go, well, what are those three people have to do with Clarence? Just talk to them. Right. So the movie went from one year to three years because wow. there was just more and more people. Yeah. So finally I was like, look, are we making a movie or a miniseries? Because <laughs> Clarence has enough stories that we can just keep shooting. Right. And I'm down with keeping shooting. I want to document it all. I mean, I'm, I, you know, he's also this zealot guy that goes through every black institution, right? right? From Motown to WBLS mm-hmm. to Ebony to, I mean, everything, right. right? So, and they're like, no, no, it's a movie. I said, then we need to stop <laughs> because these are all very powerful people, and. If we don't put someone in, not like, a good look. No, <laughs> no, let's not do that. So, uh, but no, I mean Clarence. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I think his focus. I mean, you know, his tough guy exterior mm-hmm. that protects his care for fairness, 
for black people and for all people. Because mm-hmm. he's helped a zillion white folks as much as he's helped black folks. Absolutely. And so, you know, everyone kind of stereotypes, well, to get ahead, you got to be an asshole. You got to screw people over. Da, da, da. Well, he didn't do any of that. And, you know, he had failures and he had successes. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he's beloved by all. He sleeps great at night every night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now because of his movie, I feel like he's now a permanent part of the Black Pantheon. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm like, I'm really okay if my legacy is anything like that. Yeah. You know, and you don't have to give in to the pressure of being this stereotype mm-hmm. of what a success is and, you know, what you have to, and just being a bad person as the only path to success. Right. And, you know, speaking of your legacy, it's just looking back at your career. I mean, there's been just been so much that you've been involved in. And so what would you say has been one of your most significant creative challenges? And how did you get over it? And what did you learn from it? Mm. I think the challenge is always being comfortable with your initial creative impulse. Mm. Whether you're coming up with an, an original idea or you're reading a script and it lights a kind of pilot light in you, yeah. you know, you have to protect that pilot light. Not just from people who are trying to take you in, in the wrong direction, but people who are your collaborators mm-hmm. who have their own version of it. You're like, oh, that's cool, but no, 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 it's this. Right. And sometimes that means truly stepping out on faith and doing things that look crazy to people. Right. Um, I just do this show every year at the every other year mm-hmm. at the Hollywood Bowl yep. called the Salute to Black Movie Soundtracks, mm-hmm. and it's mainly because well, I love seeing music at the Hollywood Bowl. I love seeing movies with the scores playing at mm-hmm. the Hollywood Bowl, and if it was Shaft, it'd be even better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I just realized no one was going to do that until I did it. So I'm not a concert guy, mm-hmm. but I did it, and at one point. Everyone knew I was crazy. The Academy thought I was crazy. The Bowl thought I was crazy. But they were like, that Reggie, Jesus. <laughs> Just get out of his way. It'll be over with soon enough. And when we did the show, everybody was like, oh, my God, this is the best show ever. Uh-huh. But no one saw it until they saw it. Exactly. And then it was obvious. Yeah. So, again, 30 years later, people were like, oh, that's what you meant. Mm-hmm. I mean, doing Django Unchained. You know, that script was going around town and, and, you know, people would call me, have you heard about this Quentin Tarantino script, Django? I was like, yes. Well, what do you know about it? Well, uh, funny you should call. I'm now a producer of it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Quentin and I are friends. He sent me the script and I loved it. You loved it? Yes. Have you read it? Well, no, but Uh (laughs) then let's end this conversation now. Because if you telling me what Cousin Pookie said, <laughs> and he ain't read the script either. So this is second second half from Pookie's point of view. We're good. Uh, everyone knows a Pookie. <laughs> <laughs> we love Pookie. Not making career decisions based on Pookie's perspective. Now. <laughs> I feel like, you know, just to kind of sum up, I mean, kind of on the flip side of that question, I mean, how have you come to define creativity in your career? Like, what does that mean to you? It just means making things, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think you have an idea. Mm-hmm. You think it has merit. You figure out what is the best platform for it. Mm-hmm. It could be a podcast. Yep. It could be a movie. No medium is better than the other. Mm-hmm. And don't be scared of medium. 
whether you work with it or not. Yeah. Just do it. Talk to people smarter than you. Listen to them. Yeah. Based on good advice and your original concept, do what you think is right. Fail faster. Mm-hmm. And do it again. Nice. Words to live by. Reginald, thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you. you coming by. This was great. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Finey. 